just to come this far has required three interviews and a background check. The car makes another turn on the desert road. You open your rucksack and check your passes and documents are all there for the fifth time. The car has been driving over an hour since leaving the main highway and as it crests a hill, another light source besides your headlamps illuminates the landscape. As your driver pulls up to the perimeter fence, you both present papers to security and are waved through to the main entrance. Hitting through on your own, you pass another security check and once the guard receives confirmation that everything is safe inside, you get to enter the building. Once inside, you have to take off all your clothes, deposit them in a container and put on scrubs. After this, you're allowed to the next stage where you test and put on an airsuit. Two layers of globes follow. Then boots, then a respirator system that links to an air supply from the building itself. And again, you're allowed to proceed. Every 10 meters, you have to detach your breathing tube and reattach it to the next section's air supply. If everything goes according to plan, none of this equipment will be needed. But if something goes wrong, it may save your life. You are not in a safe place. You have just arrived in a biosafety level 4 containment lab. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Konica. And I'm Vela Mitrovich. For this episode, we've partnered with WSP to talk about high containment labs. These are isolated, secure locations that contain some of the deadliest materials on the planet. They are the front line in our efforts to understand and prevent outbreaks of deadly disease. They're also extraordinarily intricate, complicated and expensive structures that often require a large amount of energy, water and chemicals to function. Compromising such a facility's operations in any way is simply not an option. So when it comes to, say, a target for net zero by 2050, designing a lab with that end in mind is very different to an office block. To do so requires not just an understanding of engineering, but an understanding of the science and the scientists themselves. It requires an intelligent approach to an unknown future, building in flexibility to take advantage of new technological wins and mitigate technological disappointments. But most of all, it requires a common sense approach to where we currently are and what we can do. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Unlike our avatar in the opening of the episode, most of us have not actually been inside a lab. There are a range of types and classifications. There are some design commonalities they share and some they don't. The big changes are, are really just in terms of how Scientists are, are looking at bigger and bigger problems, if you will, or, or bigger challenges. They want all the toys in all the rooms. So it's much more advanced, if you will, than the sort of the mad scientist in the old days of in this dark little room trying to, trying to develop things. This is Les Gartner, Senior Vice President for Science and Technology Design at WSP USA. 
After training as an architect, he's been working to design laboratories, liaising with scientists for 20 years. Yeah, so my career, a lot of expertise has been developed in BSL-3 and BSL-4 labs, or in other parts of the world, P3, P4, or CL3, CL4, they all have the same number, three or four. But the letter before it refers to either biosafety level, or pathogen level, or containment level. It all means basically the same thing. There is a one to four categorization of lab security levels. A level one lab, a BSL-1 lab, is like someone's kitchen counter. It can have some, you know, contaminants, bacteria on it, so you got to keep it clean. A level two lab is like a university type of lab where you could be exposed to a variety of things, but generally they're, they're not, they're, they, they may be contagious, which they are, but they're not going to have a mortality to them. Or we have a way to prevent people from getting sick from the pathogen. And then a level three lab, is this where it starts getting trickier? And where Les's team generally works. These are, from a human perspective, they could be uh, very catastrophic, like AIDS, for example, but they are not transmitted through the air, they're transmitted through, uh, through contact or things like that. So we know how to prevent it. Or if it is transmitted through the air, we have a vaccine or some therapeutic to prevent people from getting it. And the pathogens studied in BSL-4 lab are far more dangerous. They have a high mortality rate. There is no treatment or vaccine at the time to prevent it. Think of like Ebola, which has a very catastrophic, you know, basically you get it, you have a high percentage chance that you could die from it. So those are, those are the viruses, the nasty viruses that, that a lot of the labs I work on diagnose those, those viruses, you know, things come in and they got to determine what they are, or they research how to prevent that. These are the most secure biohazard facilities built by human hands. They take the deadliest organisms so they can understand them to develop a vaccine or a therapeutic treatment. Most countries aspire to have at least one level four lab, but there are only a few dozen operating worldwide. I mean, they're very expensive to operate, very expensive to build, and they take a specialized, knowledgeable person to, to operate it. So you see a, certainly a higher percentage and a high degree number of level three labs. The expense is at least a factor of 10 greater than the most expensive office space in the most exclusive locations. It does depend on how big they are, of course, and where they're built and all the specifics, but generally they're around $1,800 to $2,000 a square foot, which is like $20,000 a square meter. We're doing one right now, just put it in perspective for you. There's one lab floor, which is a three meter floor space. Above it, there's a, a HEPA filter floor. A HEPA filter is a high efficiency particulate absorbing filter and in a floor and a half of mechanical above it. So there are another four meters, another four meters. So there's eight meters of mechanical space above it. Just this one lab floor space. And then below it, we have a floor where all the piping drainages, and then below that we have all the support services like um, incinerator generators, things like that. And then we also have uh, a utility floor. So we basically have two and a half floors below, two and a half floors above. 
to service one lab floor. So, so there's a there's a lot of engineering in there. And engineering takes power and energy. But so do the containment aspects of the lab. Level 3 labs have to process and dispose of all waste, while level 4 labs have to incinerate everything. Incineration has a huge environmental impact and can't be avoided. And then there is the air itself. So all of the air that comes out of a, uh, I'll say the top high containment lab, a level 4 lab, is double HEPA filtered. And it will filter 99.97% of our particles. And so it goes through two of those. So each one of those then filters the air, and then that air is dispersed out. After the lab processes verify the air has been cleaned. So it gets dispersed out at high speeds out into the environment after it goes through this double HEPA filtration system. The inflow air is actually single HEPA filtered so that if there's any kind of situation, any backflow will not go back up through that one. So, so the whole lab is protected by filtration systems of air. Meanwhile, the plumbing system cooks all water to about 150 degrees Celsius to kill anything that's in there. The water then needs to be cooled down and discharged into a dedicated sewer system for testing, then allowed back into the environment. We use mixing tanks from the other liquid waste in the, in the facility to cool it down so we're not adding more water. And then on top of that, we have looked at harvesting rainwater or, or other things to provide a, a reservoir of water that they will always have in case there's any issues with the utilities or anything like that. So resiliency comes into safety. You know, this building has to be able to operate during crisis, whether it be a tornado or, or, a, or an earthquake or a hurricane or whatever, or, or just power outages or, or something, somebody doing something intentional. So, so they have a lot of safety requirements to them. And so if we can provide a backup water source that takes, builds in greater resiliency and then use that to cool down water, it's a win-win situation for the facility and makes it a, a safe operation, if you will. There are also energy resiliency requirements, two power lines going in, emergency generators, batteries, uninterruptible power systems. Modern labs are becoming very equipment intensive and are demanding flexibility. So I think what we're seeing more and more trends is, is adding new equipment into the containment labs. So if you think like you're going to a, to a, to a hospital, and, and they don't know what you have, so they might give you an MRI or something like this. Well, the same is happening inside the containment labs. They want, they want to say, well, you know, if I could do that and study a high containment virus with machines like that, how, how would I do that? And so the challenge is to put an MRI into, or something like that, into a containment lab. And so now you've got different shielding around the room. You can't use metal rebar things like so you're creating a special little room inside and then you're also sealing it up making it sealed and a lot of this equipment needs regular maintenance and so you have got other people that need to get to that equipment to maintain it a lot of the equipment has um, have relief vents you can't just relief from the inside of containment out to the outside world without having some 
filters and restrictions on that. So there's a lot of technical challenges, but I'd say the planning parts of it are, are, are equally challenging because you want to use standard equipment and yet it's not really set up for decontamination. A lot of that equipment could get destroyed uh, with repeat decontamination um, and it's expensive. So, so dealing with how to add in some of those pieces of equipment that they might see in a regular lab into containment has been sort of the ongoing challenge that, that we've seen over time. Another challenge is communications. Just the amount of communications, how do you, how much can you really put in there? Like every piece of equipment now has a little data port to get information off of. Everything has information. And a lot of these are really secure facilities, so you cannot use wireless. So it's a totally, you know, air-gapped building, so everything has to be kept internalized. And so the building is wired as much as possible for today and for the future. So what does the future hold in terms of this? All we know is more and more equipment, more and more information, more and more data, and that every piece of all of those require energy and electricity. And so, so we end up putting a lot of extra redundant stuff in because it's very difficult to put that in afterwards. So it's, it's designing it for this future. You can look at the demands and changes of the past, but if you're building something for, you know, 25, 30, 40 years, you're going to have to take some predictive approaches on how they might be able to add in new technologies to these spaces. And so I, you know, the equipment drives so much of these, of these spaces, um, data, electrical, heat buildup, all those sorts of things. Increasing energy requirements for more complex facilities, anathema to reducing the laboratory footprint. Time to call in a sustainability expert. One of the challenges with labs is that they are quite complicated, which I know that um, Les talked about some, and there is a lot going on within a lab, and each lab is quite different. And so often, adding a sustainability lens to lab projects um, that are already very complicated can make them even more challenging. This is Narada Golden. He is the National Director for Built Ecology at WSP USA. And so often adding a sustainability lens to lab projects um, that are already very complicated can make them even more challenging. And so one of the things we try to do is simplify the question and focus on the areas that are most important. This can be distilled down to a key question. Where is the carbon? And our industry is learning a lot about this. And for a long time, we've known that energy, electricity, natural gas, other fossil fuels are associated with carbon emissions. And so people have focused uh, quite heavily on energy use and reducing energy use. Uh, we're seeing a, a larger focus on what's called embodied carbon. And that's an understanding that there are also carbon emissions associated with the concrete we use, the steel we use, uh, all of the equipment 
that goes into labs and all of the operations um, uh, that happens through the research. But there are a couple of important dynamics to understand. One, you hear a lot of discussion about electrification as a strategy for sustainability. Many grids are getting cleaner as they invest in renewable energy. Electricity is going to be cleaner 10 years from now than it is today. So every building that is using electricity will ultimately be cleaner 10 years now than it is today. Because of that, there has been a focus on using more electricity in buildings and using fewer fossil fuels, natural gas, and other types of fossil fuels. So electrification is one strategy for implementing sustainability outcomes. But this can become complicated for a lab, where there are specific uses for which natural gas is far more efficient than electricity. So I know I've worked with less on projects where we are looking at things like incineration and even the operation of different labs and the fuels that you're, they're using to do their research. And that makes it a little bit more challenging to electrify uh, labs specifically. Uh, they also, many of them need steam um, for various uses, and it's very hard to produce steam without some sort of natural gas. In these cases, hydrogen can provide an answer, but hydrogen needs its own infrastructure, which at present is not there. Another challenge is around disposal of water and lab chemicals. And there have been scientific advances in these areas because understandably, scientists are interested in sustainability. Getting these options into the building though, requires engineers and scientists to talk to one another. We have worked with researchers that have wanted to make their research, their chemistry, the work they're doing cleaner and greener, but haven't had the facilities to do that. So we can't design a lab for a green research practice unless that researcher wants to implement it. So we really start by talking to them talking about their goals for making that research better, more effective, and hopefully more sustainable. Labs often require a large amount of ventilation compared to other buildings. Moving fresh air into that lab to pull all of the chemicals that may be in the air out of the lab and make sure that they are safe for people. And so a big percentage of the energy use in labs is associated with ventilation. And one of the strategies for dealing with that is trying to group the things, the activities that require a lot of ventilation together so that you're not necessarily bringing uh, fresh amounts of air throughout the entire lab facility, but maybe just uh, small areas within the larger lab. And that has an energy use because we're, you know, on a cold day, we're heating up that air, we're conditioning it, uh, and that all takes energy. The more air brought into a building, the more energy you're going to use to heat it up or cool it down and condition it. And so minimizing ventilation, doing research where you need that high amount of ventilation in kind of limited areas, smaller volumes, so that you need a less fresh air. And having ventilation that is variable depending on the air quality and what's happening in that space so that you're not bringing in more outside air than you need. 
There's a lot of searching for co-benefits, but equally, a lot of the thinking revolves around why do we need X and working from there. Take incineration. Why do we need incineration? And are there ways to reduce that need for incineration based on the research that we're doing and potential changes in that research? So if we can reduce the need that is often the easiest way to reduce uh, the associated environmental impacts. And again, that is focused on how the research done is done and the operations associated with it. Narada says that on his projects, aside from where is the carbon, he also asks, where is the energy? And for every project, we, we uh, often complete an energy model. And that energy model will tell you 50% of the energy use is associated with ventilation. Possibly 15% is associated with lighting. Another 25 is associated with equipment. And you start to get a picture of the things that are using the most energy in that project. Which helps prioritize where to focus. So when we develop an energy model for a lab, it looks very different than uh, an energy model for an office building or a residential facility. When you look at an office building compared to a res residential building, you'll see a lot more energy associated with heating water because you have people running dishwashers or taking showers. And in an office, you just don't have that. So that becomes a bigger priority in a residential building than it does in office. Within labs, as I said before, ventilation is a big focus. And so really reducing the need for ventilation is pretty important. And then focusing on those systems that require natural gas and trying to move those labs away from fossil fuels. And so we're going to see technologies in the next 10 years that do a better job of producing steam with electricity. You can get them now. They're, they tend to be small and localized, so you can actually have something at your, your lab desk or station that produces steam with electricity. It um, is a little bit more expensive to operate because it uses a lot of electricity, but we're going to see changes in that uh, over the next 10 years for sure. But common strategies that are true in office and related buildings that are also relevant in labs are energy-efficient lighting, control systems that turn off lights, or reduce when people are not around. Lowered ventilation in rooms without people, these are pretty much universal. And uh, you always want to have a good picture of, of uh, real-time energy use within a lab facility and be able to manage that. And I think we try to simplify those solutions in part because if we present 10, 15, 20 different options to our clients who are already dealing with very complex lab designs, it becomes overwhelming. This is an interesting point because the future is inherently complicated when new technologies are concerned. As the lab owner looks further ahead, the what-ifs multiply. To tackle this, Narada and Les use an approach called backcasting. An example of the approach we take with our clients and this large lab campus in the UK asked us to develop a pathway to a net zero future, a net zero carbon future. 
And the approach that we take is really to help understand what that future looks like, really articulating what a lab in a net zero future in 2050 may look like and use a process called backcasting, which is kind of working backwards from that future lab to understand how we can get there. We know, for example, that a lab wants to get into a position to benefit from the green electricity of the future. So we, we do prioritize energy efficiency for those systems that use electricity. But for labs specifically, the thing that we tend to focus on is the systems that use natural gas. Uh, for heating, for hot water, for steam. And we presented four different scenarios for getting to a net zero lab in 2050. The first one is really extreme efficiency. And this is, as we present this, we know that new systems will be installed between now and 2050. The average life of these systems may be 10 or 15 years. So that future technology will be more efficient. And if you absolutely need to use fossil fuels, you wanna make sure that you are looking at five to 10 times an improvement in efficiency. Another scenario is to plan to shift to using electricity in the future. As I said before, there may not be a lot of available technology today to uh, produce steam using electricity at a large scale, but uh, manufacturers are working to develop those technologies to make that possible in 10 to 15 years. So we can design the building today to plan for a future technology that allows you to produce steam with electricity in the future. Some uh, developers and clients then say, well, why wouldn't we do that today? What's the benefit of waiting 10 to 15 years? And that really does depend on the technology itself. But for this large lab campus, we looked very closely at what it would take to design for electrification of heating and hot water today. And they are planning um, very likely on doing that throughout most of the, of the facility. And that's because there have been a lot of advances in efficiency of electric systems for heating and hot water over the last 10 years. There are certain uh, uses like steam, as I said before, that uh, are a little bit challenging to produce with electricity. And so the other scenario we looked at was designing the building to anticipate and plan for the use of hydrogen to produce steam in maybe around 2035 at the end of the life of this existing system. So. This is another way of thinking about flexibility and designing for future cleaner fuels and something that we did for this lab campus when we knew that there was not available technology today to uh, be able to install in the project. The idea is to always be in a position where there are multiple options available, no matter the course of history and technology. We are not in the business of predicting the future, but we this is one of the reasons we design for flexibility. If asked whether one should design for a future based around electricity or hydrogen, the answer is to design for both. There are a lot of misconceptions about what sustainability is. 
and um, a lot of times early on in design meetings we are working with clients to understand and address some of those misconceptions so people often think that sustainability is putting a solar panel or maybe some plants on top of your building or investing in some sort of silver bullet technology that may make everything better or potentially not investing in any technology today because there's going to be something that we don't know about that will come in 10 years that's going to reduce the impact of your project. And oftentimes these ideas can be helpful, but they may distract from some very common sense solutions that are sitting right in front of us. That looks different in a lab compared to an office building or a residential building. And not focus on silver bullet solutions, but integrated solutions that really capitalize on co-benefits or realize co-benefits. And so I think that shift from, you know, what's the super innovative technology that I can install to make this a sustainable project to the work of coordinating across many disciplines to come up with a more energy efficient, more resilient, healthier design that is going to work and isn't going to be too complicated is really what we tend to focus on. And that requires a lot more communication, an interdisciplinary approach. Sometimes it is less uh, sexy or interesting than that latest technology that you might want to put on top of the building. But we found that that kind of integrated thinking and interdisciplinary thinking results in better projects that are going to be better for people and better for the environment. And it is fundamentally good work to do. Here's Les again. I've been doing it for quite a while, but it, you know, it's a very, uh, very rewarding to do projects like this that have sort of important aspects for helping our nation's health. It helps us to understand the risks of, of these viruses and improve that and uh, help people manage through that, develop vaccines, therapeutics, and you know, and uh, so we can we can live good, strong lives. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Velo Mitrovic, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own high containment pathogen is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, WSP. And thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. And don't forget to check out our website and sign up to our newsletter for the latest engineering announcements and developments from around the world.